0: The scripture this morning comes from Matthew 6, verses 8 through 15. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, your Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. As many of you know, we've been in the sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus teaching to his disciples. Last time, two weeks ago, I, I taught the first half of what is known as the Lord's Prayer. Some might call it the Disciples' Prayer. And this prayer is divided essentially into two parts. The first part of the prayer looked and focused on God's glory, his name, his kingdom, his will. The second part that we'll be looking at this morning deals with people, deals with our needs, our provision, our need of his grace for our pardon, our protection. This prayer was was given by Jesus, not so much that it's to be repeated and repeated and repeated. He already told us in Matthew 6, 7, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard by their many words. It's not to be used just for repetition. It's actually an outline. It's designed to help us to know how to pray, how to seek God. And if you remember, last time I talked a couple of weeks ago, one of the main keys here is that we have a Father in heaven. It speaks of intimacy, that we can come to him at any time, at any moment. He wants us to seek him out in prayer. And so last time in chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, we learned that we have a Father in heaven, and we're to seek him in intimacy and reverence. Yes, he is holy, 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 but he's a Father. And those that know Christ have been ushered into the kingdom of God as a child of the king. We can know him. Also in verse 10, we learn that we're to pray for his kingdom and for his will to be established in our lives and on this earth. But his kingdom is an already, not yet kingdom. Already, it is established in our hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit. Not yet in its fullness, one day, God will establish his kingdom and reign on earth. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Praise the Lord. But today, there's gonna be a shift, and the shift goes from God's glory to our need. So how should we pray to our Father in heaven? The first thing we'll see this morning is we pray to our Father in heaven for our provision. We pray to him for our needs, our provision. Now, this is an amazing thought. You have the God of glory, the creator of all that there is, and yet he is concerned with the simplest needs in our life. Now, the initial petition here seems pretty simple. It says, give us this day our daily bread in verse 11. Let's be honest, as Americans, when was the last time you actually prayed for bread? It's a rare thing, right? We're not a third world country. And so for us, this is, mm, I don't know. Most of us are praying, Lord, don't give me any more carbs, right? But this is a very real prayer in that first century with Jesus. There was a real need. Hunger was a normal part of life in that day. This is part of the disciples' prayer. And this goes beyond the simple need of bread. It's actually for needs. It's for provision. Those things that are important to us, that are necessary for life. I was thinking some of the things that you and I might need, you might need a place to live right now and you're saying, Lord, I need a place. You might need transportation. Lord, I need transportation. You might be looking for a church. You might be the first time in this church and you're asking God for direction. I have a need of a church family. It might be this church. We'll be praying for you. You pray about it any number of needs. You might need a friend. God is concerned for us. He is a father who cares. And this pattern of prayer, this has all the necessary ingredients that we need as God's people to come to him. And the idea behind this is God desires us to seek him. He wants us to seek him. It is his heart to seek him. But we have to have some thoughtful application. When, when you look right there where it says, give us this day our daily bread, it could be translated as give us this day our bread for tomorrow. There's a future aspect in that word daily. And it carries on this idea as, Lord, I not only need what I need today, but Lord, would you carry it on into the future as well. But it's not to be kind of a carte blanche prayer. Let's just say you have a transportation need. God, I, I need a car. You might be praying, God, would you give me a McLaren? Could I have a Lotus? I want a Corvette. It's not so much carte blanche, praying for whatever we want, but it's praying really for what we see that we need. Arkent Hughes, he's a pastor, he said, we are to pray for bread, not dessert. But the order here is beautiful, right? It starts with God. It starts with his glory. And then he shifts, he shifts over, and he begins to look at at our needs, and what's more basic than bread? That was the staple back then, the thing that people really needed, and again, that's such a beautiful thought. You have the creator of the galaxies, you have the God of wonder, and he looks at the very basic things of life for us, and he cares, and he's calling us to say, we can go to him. So the heart of this prayer is he wants us to seek him daily. That doesn't mean, okay, I said a quick prayer daily, okay, I got that covered. The idea is constantly, but it's constantly as a father who cares. A.B. Simpson, he's a pastor, theologian. He said this, he said, so many of us tend to think that God as our father gives us the great gift of grace and one great lump sum, and that having received it, we're just to go on living on it, but that would be very dangerous for us. If God just gave us all of his glorious gifts of grace in one lump sum, we would be in danger of enjoying the gift and forgetting about God. For though we cannot understand it, God likes us to speak to him. It is as though a father put a great deposit for his child into the bank, and the child can only receive the supply each time by writing a check. And each time he needs an installment, he is to write another check. And that is how God deals with his children. He does not give us what we need all at once, He gives it to us in installments. It's true. He gives us just enough, doesn't it? And then we say, Lord, I'm in need again. And and he wants us to constantly come back to him. It's it's a relational aspect of knowing God. And it's an important part. Now, you understand that that God already understands what your needs are. He's all-knowing. And Jesus already spoke about that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 8. He says, so do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. But right here, He's saying, but I want you to come to me anyway. You need to come to me. Now, this prayer reveals that God's children are to be dependent on Him. We are to recognize that, that we can't do it on our own. It's an important part of the Christian life. And it could be praying for big things. It could be praying for the most simplest things in life. We're to recognize our great need of our Father in heaven. And it reminds me of a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 11. It begins in verse 1. It says, it happened while Jesus was praying in a certain place that he had finished. One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. Now, right after that, in verses 2 through 4, he shares the exact same prayer, the Lord's Prayer. But then, starting in verse 5, he begins to talk about how we're to come to him continually, persistently. Let me read it for you, verses 5 through 10. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed and I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened so jesus is instructing his disciples right here that their prayer life and our prayer life as a disciple should be like that desperate friend that desperate neighbor he wants us to come to him and say lord i'm back lord i'm still in need and we are to keep Coming to him, keep knocking, keep praying. Now we need to also understand that Jesus is not saying that God is like the grumpy neighbor. God is not grumpy. This is known as a lesser to the greater argument. Jesus is contrasting the neighbor's grumpiness and resistance with our heavenly Father's goodness and his readiness to provide what we need. God wants us to be persistent. God desires us to keep coming. This is why Jesus emphasizes it in nine and 10. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks, receives, and he who, who receives, seeks, finds, and he who knocks, it will be opened. It's keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. That's the idea, consistency. But understand, Jesus doesn't stop there. He actually intensifies it. He again gives a lesser to a greater argument. And he wants us to think about a God who cares. And so, in verses 11 11 to 13, he says this, Now suppose that one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So you have a a parent, and and understand dried or smoked fish was very common in that day as a meal. And if you have a child that comes to a parent and say, Daddy or Mommy, can I have some fish? You're not going to frighten that child by giving him a snake, would you? I mean, no normal parent would do that. Or in the morning, the child wants for breakfast. Mommy or Daddy, can I have an egg? You're not going to put that child in harm by giving him a scorpion, would you? A loving father or mother would never do that. How much more will God give us the most important gift that you can have, the Holy Spirit, which will guide us and help us and direct our path? We have an awesome God. We have a Father in heaven. And Jesus is pressing us to understand, keep coming, keep knocking, keep seeking. He wants to provide good gifts to his children. Have you ever noticed how generous God is? How many times have I had a basic need but he's given me so much more than I ever could have thought or imagined? How good our God is. Now again, this promise from God is, is a promise to provide for our needs, not so much our wants, but He's a generous Father. But He wants us to have the understanding that we're not to be greedy. A very good set of verses for that is Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 through 9. It says, Keep deception and lies far from me, and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Lord, to seek him. I read a story this past week about, in the 1800s, there was kind of that gold rush fever happening, and there was an insurance uh, broker known as Mr. Darby, and he lived on the East Coast, and he was a wealthy man, and he kind of got caught up in that gold fever, and, and he had heard that gold was found in Colorado, so he went to Colorado, and he was able to purchase a mine in the Rockies And very quickly, they found a vein of gold. And so he had a lot of rich friends in the East, and he got them to invest, and they got a lot of equipment, and they bought all this stuff, and they started to mine for gold. And the mine was very successful. As a matter of fact, at first, it was so successful that they were able to pay off all of the debt that they had. But then the vein of gold stopped. And so they invested more money, and they kept digging. And finally, they began to get worried, and all the investors pulled out. And finally, Mr. Darby had to sell his mind, and all the equipment, and he sold it to a junk dealer for just a few hundred dollars. Well, that junk dealer was very smart, and he hired a geologist. And the geologist spent a couple of months surveying the ground and doing the work he needed to do, and he came back and he says, if you dig three more feet, you're going to rediscover that vein of gold again. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Three more feet were dug, they discovered that vein of gold And that man became the most wealthiest man in all of Colorado because of that mine. True story. Three feet. Keep knocking. Keep asking. That's the point. We have a God. Even though we get frustrated, he wants to help, and he cares for our needs and provision. Amen? First thing. Second thing, pray to our Father in heaven for his grace. Pray to her father in heaven for his grace. Now it is by grace that you have been forgiven and it is by grace that you have been saved. Look at verse 12 and then we're gonna jump and look at verses 14 and 15. It says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. So it begins here, and forgive us our debts. That's a Greek word, ophelima. Now that's in the noun form. There's five basic Greek words that are used for the term sin. This word here, ophelima, is used 30 times in the verb form, 25 of those times it's used as moral or spiritual debt. So sin is a moral and spiritual debt. We owe a debt to God. We have fallen short of his glory. And sin is our greatest enemy. It is because of sin that we have disease and sickness and evil. As a matter of fact, when Paul the Apostle is writing about who believers are before they became believers, what we call the natural man, this is what he said in Titus 3.3. 3. He says, for we also were once foolish ourselves. We were disobedient, deceived enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. What that is saying is that sin contaminates the whole person. And there's nothing that we can do to rid ourselves of sin. And the ultimate effects of sin are death and damnation and eventually hell. So what do we do? Sin is the mortal and spiritual disease for which mankind has no cure. As a matter of fact, those who we call the natural men, those without Christ, they actually love their sin and they don't desire to know the truth of God. Jesus said that they love darkness more than light. John 3, 19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. The theologian, Arthur Pink, said this. He says, as it is contrary to the holiness of God, sin is a defilement, a dishonor, and a reproach to us. It is a a violation of his law. As creatures, we owe a debt of obedience unto our maker, but on account of our rank disobedience, we have incurred a debt of punishment. And it is for this that we implore divine pardon. And so Jesus says right here, forgive us our debts. Now, this is called the Lord's Prayer. But it's also known as the Disciples' Prayer. And the reason for that is Jesus does not need to pray this prayer. He is absolutely perfect. He is the Divine One. He is God in the flesh. He does not have to ask the Father to forgive his debts. He has no debts. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But he's calling us to pray that prayer and understand he is the perfect one as a matter of fact this is why paul the apostle said this in second corinthians 5:21 he said he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of god in him so the first half of that verse god made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf what he's saying there is not that jesus became a sinner Because because of Jesus' perfect life and perfection, he became the perfect substitute, and on the cross, he could pay for our sins and receive the total wrath of God. He took our sin upon himself on the cross, but it doesn't stop there. So that, second half, we might become the righteousness of God in him, in him. His perfect life, when you receive Christ, is actually credited to your account. You now are declared righteous. You are declared justified before a holy God. Matter of fact, Romans 5.1 puts it like this. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Before Christ, you're at enmity with God. You're at war. Because of Christ, peace has been established. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is the gospel message. As Christians, we are no longer under judgment. We have been declared righteous, justified, just as if you've never sinned. Beautiful. And no one, and I mean no one, can bring a condemnation against you. This is why Paul said in Romans eight thirty three and 34, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather was raised, and who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. We stand positionally forgiven, justified, declared clean, spotless. However, in that, relationally, you need to ask forgiveness every day. Relationally, we break our relationship, if you are our fellowship with God constantly. Why? Because we live in this body. We have sinful flesh. And so this prayer is asking us to pray regularly, daily, constantly for him to forgive our debts, our sins. And then he adds onto that a qualification. Look at the second half of verse 12. He says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then he wants to emphasize the point, really bring it with a punch. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, for if you forgive others for their transgression, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Whoa. I mean, what do we do with that? Any of you a little nervous right now? Does he mean that if we don't forgive someone, God won't forgive us and we won't be saved? You're waiting for my answer, right? No. Again, it is by the grace of God that we're saved. There is no work, no religious deed that you can do. It is unmerited favor, God's grace that saves us. But what Jesus is saying here, because we are saved because that change has taken place, because he has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit, there is a transformation within us, a change that takes place. Now we want to forgive and we are enabled to forgive because of the work of the Spirit. That's what he's saying. The proof of our faith is the fact that we have a desire to be like our Lord and to forgive others. Now, this reminds me of the parable that Jesus said of the two debtors. Now, the parable began with Peter, and Peter always asked these real pointed questions. In Matthew 18, 21 and 23, Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, "I, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 77 times for this reason The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. So the Lord says, hey, Peter, no, not seven times. Seven times 70 means infinite. It means whenever somebody hurts you and you need to forgive them, you need to forgive them. And then he goes into this parable, and most of us know this parable. There's a king, he wants to settle debts, and, and one of his servants comes to him, and this servant Owes him a tremendous amount of money. He owes him 10,000 talents. Now, a talent is worth 15 years' worth of wages, one talent. Okay, 10,000 talents. Guys, in our day and age, you're talking billions. It's so much that we could never pay it back. He could never pay it back. And so the king says, I'm gonna throw you into jail, I'm gonna throw your family into jail until that debt is paid and this man falls to his knees and he begs the Lord, forgive me. I'll pay the debt, just give me more time. And it says that the king has compassion on him. And he totally doesn't only say, yeah, you can pay me back. He actually forgives his debt completely. Total grace Unmerited favor. What amazing kindness. But that man wasn't changed. And he literally leaves the king's presence, goes out, finds one of his servants, his slaves, and he grabs him by the neck and he starts shaking him. He says, you pay me what you owe me. The man owed him a 100 denarii. It's about three months' wages. And his slave says, please, give me time. And he says, no way. And he throws the guy in jail. And so the king hears about it, and this is what happens in verse 34 of chapter 18. It says, and his lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. That wicked servant had not been changed by the great gift of God. And then Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 35 and says, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each one of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Do you understand how much you've been forgiven? Do you feel the weight of your sin before an all holy God? He should not have forgiven you. I deserve judgment. You deserve judgment. But instead... Through Jesus Christ, he has given great, abundant grace freely. And if you have received Christ, you should be changed. There should be nothing holding you back. If you're saying, I would never forgive them, watch it. What is that in your heart? Do you even understand what God has done for you? That's what he's saying. Do you know the breadth and the depth of the love of God for you in Christ. You're that person with 10,000 talents and if you have been offended by someone else, they're the one that has like oh, 100 denarii. He's calling us to forgive. Would it be like him? Now forgiveness and reconciliation, they go hand in hand. Ephesians 2, eight and nine says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, but this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. But our response is to be one of repentance and faith, and both go together. Salvation is not universal. Only those who repent and receive God's gracious offer of forgiveness through Christ, atoning sacrifice, will be reconciled to him. So we might summarize God's forgiveness this way. By his grace, God moves towards us. He is the offended party. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, ahead of us and he makes this amazing offer to us of forgiveness and reconciliation. But to experience that forgiveness and reconciliation, we must respond in repentance and faith. If we do not, we don't experience the reconciliation with God, the forgiveness that we need. So what does it look like for you and I to forgive others? The same thing. We are to extend forgiveness. We have been the offended party. We are to move forward just as God did for us and extend the forgiveness. The however in that, reconciliation cannot happen unless the person who has offended us repents. I love what author Dan Allender, he's a Christian author, he said this, he said, forgiveness involves a heart that cancels the debt but does not lend new money until repentance occurs. I love that. But those of us that know Christ, not only are we called to do it, we're empowered to do it. We have the Holy Spirit. He wants to help us and he calls us higher. So if you say, I will not, I cannot forgive, watch it. There's something going on with your understanding of the gospel and how much God has forgiven you, or you don't know him. Scary thought. I read a story this past week. Many of you know who Ravi Zacharias is. He's an apologist, preacher, pastor. In his book, it's called Jesus Among the Secular Gods. He shared a story he was meeting with a young Muslim Palestinian, and he says we were sitting in a coffee shop in Jerusalem. And this young man spoke in a soft tones, and he mentioned to me that he had observed a conversation between a leading Muslim sheik and a Christian missionary named Brother Andrew. And the sheik had recently ordered the killing of eight Israel, Israelites because the Israelis, because the Israelis, sorry, the Israelis had killed four Palestinians whom they had accused of crimes against the Jewish people. And Brother Andrew asked the sheik, who appointed you judge and jury and gave you the authority to order such killings? And the sheik replied, I'm not the judge and jury. I'm merely the instrument of God's justice. And there was a moment of silence. And then Brother Andrew asked this question. What place is there then for forgiveness? Listen, this is what the sheik said. He said, forgiveness is only for those who deserve it. Muslim theology. Now there was a real protracted silence and the young Palestinian said to me, I thought at once this explains everything and then I thought, not really, it explains nothing. If forgiveness is merited, then it is not really forgiveness, is it? And then he said, I saw two completely different worldviews at work, both with a common starting point of God, but they both have radically different views. And then this young man stopped and said, Grace is real and it's needed, isn't it? Yes, it is. Are you grateful for the grace of God? Do you understand you are that person with 10,000 talents of sins against God and yet he wiped them away, swept them clean. So when we pray, we first pray for our provision, but we also pray for God's grace. Third thing. Pray for our Father in heaven for protection. Pray for our Father in heaven for protection. God is a God who loves us and also a God who protects his people. Verse 13 says, and do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. Well he starts off with do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil and that Greek word for temptation is periasmos and it basically has two main meanings. First, it can mean testing or trials, but it can also mean temptation. And the same word can be used dif- depending on the context for both. The word for evil is panoras, and it means the devil. So the proper way this should probably read, and maybe some of your Bibles say this, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I think there's probably a better rendering of the way that the actual Greek language is. Now, that word periosmos for either trials or temptation, the best place to find that used both ways is in the book of James. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says, Consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, periosmos, knowing that the testing of your faith, it produces endurance. Now, it's obvious that what James is speaking about there is that this is a testing or a trial from God to those who are his children as a means of growing us up, as a means of his grace to mature us, to change us. We are called to rejoice in that kind of periosmos. But later on in the chapter, James speaks about another kind of periosmos, and that is temptation, and this is not from God. James 1, 13 and 14, he says, "'Let no one say when he is tempted "'that I'm being tempted by God, "'for God cannot be tempted by evil, "'and he himself does not tempt anyone, But each one of you is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. So we're not to rejoice in that kind of periasmos, temptation. And it's not a temptation from God. It's either temptation from our own flesh, from the world, or from the devil. And we're to to try to fight that. And so he says in another place, in James 4, 7, he speaks of the assaults that we receive from the devil. And this is what he says, James 4, 7, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So the temptation referred to in the Lord's prayer is not the testing periosmos that comes from God to strengthen our faith, nor is it primarily the temptation that comes to us from our own sinful flesh or from a sinful world. The temptation that he's talking about is directly from the enemy of our souls, the devil. This is why in verse 13 of Matthew 6, he's saying, deliver us from the evil one, that's what he's talking about there. Now, we're to pray for protection. We're to ask God to help us in our time of need. And particularly when it comes to temptation, we know that the scripture is very clear that God will make a way of escape for us. First Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, such as common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able, but with temptation will provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. And then in verse 14, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, no matter the temptation, whether it's of the flesh, whether it's from the world or the devil, he's gonna make a way of escape. But how we fight matters. Idolatry is a sin of pride. It's a sin of the flesh, but also it's a sin of the world. And he's saying flee it. Now, Paul also says that we're to flee youthful lust in 2 Timothy 2.22, and in 1 Corinthians 6.18, we're to flee immorality. So there are two main ways that we fight temptation, particularly of the flesh and of the world, is to run. But it's different when it comes to fighting the devil's schemes. Again, James 4.7, he says, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Do you see the difference? We are to submit and resist. So what does it mean to re- submit? To submit to God is to surrender our will to his will and to obey his word. We are submitting to the truth of God. We're acknowledging that he has the rightful throne in our life and we submit to the truth of what he teaches us in his all holy word. So what does it mean to resist? We resist the enemy of our souls by fighting with the word of God. Prayer and the word, they go hand in hand. They are the main weapons of our defense and offense. Now understand the devil's schemes. He does not want us to win. Psalm 119.11 says, Your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. And the three ways the devil attacks is primarily this. One, he's a deceiver. He's a liar, deceit. And he lies to you. Why? Because he wants you to doubt. Second thing. He wants to cause you to doubt your own salvation. He wants you to to doubt the the effectiveness of the cross. He wants you to doubt everything so that, third thing, you become discouraged. He does not want strong Christian believers solid in the word of God fighting the good fight. And we learn the best way to fight in Ephesians 6. We are to put on the armor of God. Ephesians 6 is Paul's, if you will, prescription for fighting the good fight. And it begins in verses 10 and 11 with, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And then verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, I, I'm not gonna go through this whole thing and read all the verses, but I wanna show you how important the word of God is in the fight against the devil. In verse 14, he's, we are to gird our loins with truth. That is preparation for battle. We begin with the word of God. When you're preparing to stand against temptation and against the schemes of the devil, asking God for protection, it's prayer, and it is the word of God. Then we put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's Christ's righteousness. We shot our feet with the gospel. That is, we stand in the truth of the gospel. We have the helmet of salvation. I mean, the shield of faith, it extinguishes the attacks of the devil. We stand in faith. We have the helmet of salvation With guards our minds with truth. That's the assurance of our salvation. And then we have the sword of the spirit. Again, that's the word of God. He banks the armor of God with the word of God. Do you see it? And then he goes right into prayer in verse 18. And he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times, and with this view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Prayer in the word, guys. Submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That is the way we fight as Christians. We meditate, we know the word of God, we take it in, and we pray diligently for God's protection and help. Now, I want to give you a little warning. There's something floating around out there, and it's pretty prevalent right now in our culture, and it's called mindfulness. That's Buddhism repackaged for secular culture. The military has bought into this, and now they're training their soldiers on mindfulness, Also, it's been brought into education, mindfulness, and it is the exact opposite of Christianity. It is to devoid your mind of all thought, meditation, and believing that you have the power within that you can access, totally opposite of Christian faith. Warning, if you hear mindfulness, run! It's not of the Lord. The Christian faith is taking in the word of God, memorizing the word of God, Knowing the Word of God, meditating on the Word of God, and prayer. That's the Christian faith. And so you and I are to fight. That's how our Lord fought. He had three temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And how did he fight? The Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God. That's what we do as God's people. Understand, we are more than conquerors in Christ. And we stand in the power and the strength of his might. And although God is a judge to those that don't know him, to us, he is a father. And we run and run to him at any time. And we can pray at any time for our provision. And we constantly need to be in prayer for the grace for our pardon. And always we pray for his protection. Amen. Okay, let's close in prayer. Well, Father, always grateful to you that as your people, we can come to you at any moment. I love the way Jesus put this prayer together. It just shows us, Lord, how much you want us to know you and trust you and how to draw close to you. Father, would you help us, each one of us here today, Lord, to be constantly seeking, constantly knocking, constantly coming before your throne in faith. Help us, Lord, as your people, to know and trust the word of God. Help us to dig down deep and to put it in our hearts and our minds. Lord, let us bathe in the word of God. Let us fight with the word of God and with prayer. Teach us to be bold, Lord, and to fight the good fight, because we know that you are faithful. You're a good, good father and we can trust you, and we do, in Jesus' name, amen. As many of you know, we we always have a time of prayer after the service, and we do this particularly as the word of God is preached, the Holy Spirit is often moving and helping people maybe see something or he's directing thoughts and all that kind of thing. If the Lord has spoken to you this morning, there'll be people up front that, that wanna pray for you, and I particularly wanna focus on one thing. Some of you have bitterness of soul, You have not and will not forgive. And it is eating you alive. This is one of the main things I deal with as a pastor and letting you know that. And it rips apart the heart of a believer. And God is calling you, encouraging you today. Lay it down. Lay it down. So I want to pray for us. If this is you, come forward. You don't even have to share what it is. You can just say, I need prayer for that. And we will pray. And I say, God will break that hold. Let's pray together. Father, we pray and ask your grace and help in this area, particularly of unforgiveness. Would you show us, Lord, how we might release this to you and then forgive? And then, Lord, it'd be such a blessing if you would bring reconciliation, but that's your help, Lord, of your spirit. So, Father, we we lean into you and we trust you in Jesus' name.